When there's a fire or medical emergency, most run the other way. For hundreds of volunteers in our community, it's the exact opposite. This year, Portage Health Foundation is celebrating those volunteers with $50,000 in funding. All volunteer emergency services units in Barraga, Houghton, Keweenaw, or Onsonagan County are eligible for this funding with up to $5,000 available per grantee. This grant can be used to fund new turnout gear, make upgrades to vehicles or buildings, and much more. We can't wait to see how this funding will be used to make our community a safer place. Learn more at phfgive.org. Welcome to Copper Country Today. I'm Grant Ducetto. This program brought to you by the Portage Health Foundation. You can learn more about them at phfgive.org. A couple weeks ago, we heard from State Representative Greg Markinen. This week, we are hearing from State Senator Ed McBrew. So we will start with an email that uh, you guys actually sent out today, I believe, about the Senate approving one-year bills requiring only UP representation on the State Wolf panel. I know that's something that you've been working on for several months now. So why don't you explain it a little bit and uh, sure. kind of get into whether you think it has a shot at getting signed into law here. So there is an advisory panel that simply examines the wolf situations uh, when it's convened and provides advice to the Natural Resources Commission and the Department of Natural Resources. The, the panel is made up of the DNR director along with five individuals selected to represent uh, animal uh, welfare organizations, hunting, conservation, agriculture, and the tribes. Right now, in that selected group of six people, only one of them is from the Upper Peninsula. But it's obvious that we have people who would fit tribal obligations, animal welfare groups, hunting, and conservation, and agriculture. And so there's really no excuse in my mind for the director to have not chosen all of that body from the Upper Peninsula, as they do with many other advisory panels, whether it's for the elk and the Pigeon River, the Pigeon River uh, itself, Belle Isle, all of these other groups are made up of citizens who are directly impacted by the issue. And yet we come to this panel and only one member on that entire panel is. And it's only advisory. They're not making the policy. They're not making the decisions. So it seems like a very reasonable and common sense issue that fits in with the pattern of other advisory panels. It unfortunately... It seems to be not thought of that way by those opposing it who made statements today that were very patronizing and snobby towards those of us in the UP as if we can't possibly be entrusted with the discussions on this because we won't be fair. We won't do what's right. Uh, the members of the panel will be unduly biased initially going in. Like it, It's just really absurd. And I suspect that the governor, in the end, probably won't support it unless I can start actually making some headway and persuade people about the true nature of this legislation. We seem to have a pretty good idea what the moose count is here in the Upper Peninsula. I know that the mm -hmm. gray wolf has been taken off of the endangered species list. So there's got to be a number floating around there somewhere as far as what the wolf population is. But it doesn't seem yeah, to get published. Yeah, between 800 usually. And... Do you happen to know that number, what, how it compares to, say, 10, 15, even 20 years ago? Well, let's see. Um, I know that I believe they felt that we met the minimum recovery of 200 pairs, 220 pairs, um, back in early 2000s, like 2002. But I'm, I'm not 
firm on remembering the exact details of when and where for all of these numbers, but we've been over the 700 mark, um, which is, you know, three and a half times our goal of recovery um, since the late 2000s, at least when they were first delisted the very first time. And I know with uh, the state of Wisconsin, they actually did a wolf hunt, I believe, last fall. Or maybe it was actually earlier this year. Yeah, earlier this year. So if they can do it with a Democrat governor, it would seem to me that uh, I don't know what would make Michigan significantly different as far as the ability to pull something like that off if we decide that it's the right course of action. Well, and then as far as, you know, my perspective and what many people have heard before, we this advisory panel and its work is for future management. We have a plan in place right now. And that plan that we have right now ought to have been acted on by the Natural Resources Commission and the department already. And so we ought to have already had a hunt just like Wisconsin did. Um, We ought to already have one scheduled for this fall. And I think it's irresponsible and ridiculous that we are not following the plan we have in place already and that the department has literally committed to doing a public opinion survey statewide and making a determine next year on this issue as if that had anything to do with the constitutional mandate on them, the statutory mandate on them to make determinations by sound science. How is a public opinion survey relevant to managing our animals by sound science? It's ridiculous and ludicrous. Another topic that I think kind of dovetails nicely with this, you were talking to Northern Michigan University Rural Insights about the State Board of Education and how it at one time was supposed to be representative with people from across the state as far as the composition, but it's really become a situation where you get a lot of people from Metro Detroit and you get a lot of people from Grand Rapids and outside of the major population centers, you don't see quite as many people making it to the state board of education. Why don't you talk about Pretty that? Pretty much see bit? nobody. Yeah. Well, at one time, I think both parties were a bit more responsible on this issue. Education was a lot less partisan in nature all over the country And so we typically found teachers, former teachers, former educators, administrators to serve on the state board. Um, But both parties have really descended into a partisan battle for control. And that means by really so few people get that far down the ballot in the first place, usually to vote that winning the seat is all about just slightly advantaging yourself beyond the straight party ticket votes. And so both parties are very incentivized to find candidates with as big a name ID as they can, who have as much of their own personal financial resources as possible. And that has really left both parties finding candidates from Southeast Michigan and occasionally from Grand Rapids for decades now. And so I'm trying to break us out of what we what's really kind of become and shift us to a way to having that kind of regional distribution of representation, particularly because while the population basis might be strongest in Southeast Michigan, the amount of schools that are actually governed across the state is much more diverse than that. The Upper Peninsula has more school districts than Detroit does. And so 
we have more superintendents, we have more school boards, we, we have more classrooms. I mean, these are, and, and the diversity of those schools all over the state of Michigan, not just in the UP, is enormous. From one-room schoolhouses to the very large districts outside of Detroit. And I have been so frustrated in the past when I've had to have meetings with members of the state board of my own party who could not see the distinguished differences that rural schools have when it comes to initiating many various policy issues, whether it's uh, welding and automotive classes, CTE, whether it's third grade reading, uh, whether it's access to music and the arts. Uh, those who are coming from the urban perspective certainly have a valid perspective that needs to be presented, but they don't present the rural perspective. And we need to see if we can have a better regional basis for representation on the board, make it more functional again, make it more stable again, and take it out of this constant contention with um, the urban and the rural, the legislative branch, and really return the board to a, a body that is making policy for the whole state. And I think we saw that I'm thinking of a particular issue that would be uh, standardized testing. I know the state superintendent yeah. was very against having that this year, even after the federal government came in and said, you guys, you got to do it this year. But uh, around and here, my, many and, of the district superintendents were actually at least mildly in favor of, of sitting down and having those tests done just so they could see where they were. It was going to be kind of a benchmark. Right. Well, and my approach to this then, because the state board is constitutional, and if we shifted to equal population districts, such as the House of Representatives has, where you only have eight members, you'd still really end up with six of the eight people from southeast Michigan and one from Grand Rapids and then one representing the entire rest of the state. That's not really giving us the diversity of school districts that we have in the state then. And so I took a map that was utilized in our state constitution for a redistricting commission years ago. And that had eight districts in it. And I used that map as the starting point and um, then create a system where the parties nominate their candidates from those districts on a re revolving basis every uh, every two years for election. And then um, the candidates are still elected at large. So it doesn't provide any advantage to one political party over the other. And even when I've been criticized for that by my own party, I've quickly responded. I'll take a UP Democrat on the State Board of Education over a Detroit Republican any day, any day of the week. That would just be great to have one person from the UP on this board so that our superintendents, our teachers, our parents can call this person, invite them to hear what's going on, have them show up at a school board meeting. We're not getting that right now from uh, the members who are all from Southeast Michigan. And do you think that that's one of the main sticking points on adopting something like this is the fact that we've seen rural and less uh, populated areas kind of begin to become more homogenous as far as being Republican uh, dominated? And then we've seen urban areas, even suburban areas, begin to turn a lot bluer than maybe in the past where it was a bit more mixed up? Well, I'm not exactly sure I can explain why this issue I think it's mainly misunderstandings. I, I wrote this bill with a good friend of mine who was a Democrat from Lansing because he said, I never get anybody from the Lansing area on the State Board of Education. I talked to a member today from Flint. 
he doesn't get somebody from his area on the state board of education. So um, this is, shouldn't be a partisan issue. This is about distributing the understanding of something that's very diverse in our state. Just schools are so different all over the state. Um, I'm very open to members suggesting, well, let's move the lines of the districts you drew here or there. That's fine with me. I mean, I don't expect the UP to have five of the eight. <laughs> I'm just asking for one. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that this is not an unreasonable issue. It shouldn't be partisan by any means because it doesn't upset the mode that people are elected in. So it's still probably going to be dominated by Democrat voters. But as I said, um, I, I'm looking for somebody who understands the area they come from. And uh, I'm not worried so much about the partisan perspective on this issue. And, and if I was, this wouldn't be the way to fix that. Mm-hmm. Something so else I, I'm that, still uh, optimistic in persuading my colleagues that this is good policy and that they should support it. Something else that we've talked about in the past would be the, the nursing home issue. I know you're on the Oversight Committee, and you've been looking into yeah. that since the beginning of the year. Uh, reporter Charlie Leduff, who used to be with Channel 2 down in Detroit in the Mackinac Center for Public Policy, which is conservative-leaning, certainly, uh, they have uh, presented at least an idea or a theory that the nursing home death total could be undercounted by as much as, you know, 75, maybe even 100 percent. Kind of where is your investigation at and what are you seeing as far as that issue goes? So just this past week, uh, my committee received the first response to our subpoena for all the documents regarding this issue. Um, As I mentioned on your show last time, we started looking into this last spring. Then the task was given to a different committee that met until the conclusion of last year. And now it's been handed back to me. So I'm kind of picking it back up, getting back on the track again where we were. Um, So we've received tens of thousands of documents. We've just begun paging through them. I had a very detailed meeting on our findings so far this week. And I expect you're going to be hearing a lot more about it in the next month or two. And then something else that I saw today, actually, it came from Axios, which is kind of a uh, millennial-type um, reporting site, and they said that unemployment benefits that were paid out over the past year, as much as half of them went to people who were from actually outside of the country, and in a lot of cases, it was foreign crime syndicates. Now, I haven't done any research into this, but I know the unemployment claim system in Michigan was not uh, not performing at its best over the past year. Is there any um, kind of evidence that maybe we had some of these issues where it was going to people who weren't supposed to be getting it? And like, what is being done as far as reforming the system so that type of stuff doesn't happen again? Uh, There's quite a bit of evidence that fraud was the major component as the state rushed into the unemployment uh, payments last year during the beginning of COVID. Um, There's several um, investigations and looks into what's happening there. I'm expecting a report from the Auditor General's office soon. Um, There's going to have to be a significant amount of work on this issue. Um, And so some of it's begun, but there's there's a long way to go. And and it honestly keeps on developing. I mean, we spend time every week still in my office helping citizens, some of whom haven't been paid their unemployment benefits from last year yet. So it continues to be a problem, and the need for reform is very real. Is part of the problem the fact that so many other agencies contributed staff to help the backlog get relieved? 
I would assume that there's just not as much accountability under such a scenario. And on top of that, maybe they didn't have the same amount of training that a normal unemployment agency employee would have. My understanding so far is not that our problems really derive from having uh, urgently filled positions with untrained people so much as it was demands that there simply be a, an approval and then we'll come back and fix things later. So certainly the reason why so much backlog happened was lack of trained persons, um, especially for the adjudication that we require when somebody makes a mistake. Um, that has to be done by somebody who has multiple years of experience and certification. So we didn't have enough of those people when this began and so many people needed that service. But I wouldn't say that the underlying problems came from uh, retaining uh, help from other departments to help answer the phones so much as it just came from a, a bad policy decision on how to say yes or no. And, and also from a longstanding uh, clerical problem, I think that comes from the way we even present the questions and the forms to citizens to fill out. They're, they're confusing. They ask very confusing questions. And citizens make errors that could be easily thwarted by simply writing better forms, asking clearer questions, and providing better guidance. And as soon as a citizen makes one of those critical errors, now they have to wait for a hand adjudication to correct it. They can't go back and fix it. So there, there are those clear problems to how we got into this mess. And is that kind of the common thread for the people who are still waiting for their first payments, who are still sitting in limbo there, that that's the main issue there? Well, there's, there's, many, there's many of those, but a lot of the ones we're dealing with now simply kept trying, and they, they were hitting some roadblock, and they didn't come to our offices and ask for help, or they got back to work and didn't have time to do all the follow-up themselves. Um, you know, there's, it was interesting how people who had had trouble with unemployment before, especially around the late 2000s, early 2010s, um, they knew right away last year, call the state rep, call the state senator, and get this straightened out. Uh, they didn't even hesitate. People who had never been on unemployment before didn't realize how much that can help expedite their situation. Mm-hmm. As far as the Secretary of State's office goes, I know that Republicans yes. have been big as far as getting walk-in appointments, or I guess not appointments, but walk-in customers allowed again. And the other side of the aisle is kind of more of a, let's add uh, some extra funding and hire some more people, and therefore we can increase the number of appointments that each office can take. Are we going to find ourselves kind of settling on a path that's somewhere in the middle of that, or do you think one side's going to kind of win the day? Well, it's it's been really troubling to see just this kind of progression, right? The offices got closed down so hard last spring, but hey, everybody was doing their best, right? And then those offices have lingered as the last bastion of restrictiveness and restrictive access all over the state, despite the fact that this backlog just grew and grew and grew. And when the secretary announced, hey, we're never going back to what we had before, we're just, nobody liked that, so everybody wants it to be this way, 
it was a really big mistake, I think, in management. It, it really showed a lack of understanding of how the office has worked and how people are accustomed to it working, and also how we how we deal with this backlog of people who have things that can't be done online. So, you know, fast forward a few weeks, and suddenly as this becomes a nightmare, we're being blamed in the legislature. Well, they went, it's their fault, which just, like, how is that exactly? You didn't ask us to do differently. This was your decision. And then she says, well, they won't give me money. And then yesterday announces, um, well, I can do all this stuff, hire all these additional people, create all these additional appointments without the legislature. So it kind of undermines the argument that it was our fault for not giving her some money. Uh, but I don't think that the efforts made yesterday are actually going to be able to clear this backlog in short order. It's just more chaos and confusion. At least that's how it seems so far. And I think we're probably going to have to appropriate more funds. We're going to have to create or, or demand Wednesday night, Saturday hours again to help clear this backlog. Now, what we do once the backlog is cleared, do we have to go back to how it was? I suppose not. Maybe it could work. But honestly, who, do you or I schedule an appointment to go get a copy of a birth certificate or a deed from the clerk's office? Do you or I schedule an appointment to go get our groceries or stop in to buy oil filters at a store? I mean, very few things that we do are restricted to appointments. And they're usually meetings with professionals like a lawyer or a doctor. And so why, why create this whole kind of new system out of whole cloth? We had a system that allowed walk-ins where you could wait or take a number and leave and come back when they'd notify you it was getting close to your time. Or you could schedule an appointment. We had the best of all three. We had all three options. And especially for us in the UP, it was working quite well. Uh, people rarely had to wait ages. I mean, occasionally did, you know, especially if somebody came in with a very complex situation, which occurs occasionally. But um, we have CDL drivers who need to get in quickly after their federal permits. They can't wait three or five months like they're having to do right now. People pass away and their relatives have to go transfer items. Waiting five months isn't good for that. Uh, there's so many other issues that come up that are just more practically done when you can say, hey, I'm heading up to town today. I'm going to stop at Secretary of State's office, make sure I got the time on my schedule. Um, it's, it's just not practical to say we should all shift over to this appointment basis when, hey, I might hit a deer today and get a new car tomorrow off the side of the road and need to get that licensed ASAP and I've got to wait three months to get an appointment. It's just crazy. Mm -hmm. I think this might be another one of those rural versus urban issues. I grew up in Livonia just outside Detroit, and every once in a while you'd go into the Secretary of State's office and you might be, I don't know, number 70 in line. And yeah, it could be a while when you were sitting there waiting. But I've also lived in Bad Axe, a town of just 3,000 people. And, you know, I walked right in and got my voter registration changed, and I was out the door in less than 10 minutes, and that was without making an appointment. So up here in yeah. Houghton, when you got a city of 8,000 people, maybe 12,000 or 15,000 if you want to include the general area, are you going to be waiting three or four hours? Probably not, not in most scenarios. Right. But why, why create all this confusion? Why change it up? It was working well. COVID, of course, thrown a monkey wrench in, so we needed real leadership to 
adapt us back then, especially after keeping them closed so long. So I, I don't know. It's it's very puzzling as to why this is proving to be so difficult um, to to envision by those managing the decisions down here on this. Moving to a different topic, as far as the legislature goes over the summertime, how much work do you guys do? Are you mostly in your districts back in your hometown communities for the next couple months, or how does that work exactly? Well, typically, we try to wrap up the budget sometime in June. Um, Some years very early in June and some years late. Um, I think we're going to be striking somewhere in the middle of that, maybe just a little past halfway. And then spend most of the summer that doesn't mean we don't have committee meetings or, or other obligations to attend at the Capitol but as far as session goes it's generally a pretty light uh, schedule for July and August uh, which allows for a lot of in-district work and I'd be doing a lot of office hours perhaps being able to get town halls rolling again which you know we just haven't done since COVID's been around uh, you know, and attending community events, working uh, with legis- other legislators in the UP, and of course around the state by phone or, or email. So we keep pretty busy, but we also get a chance to enjoy the, the beautiful summer and the Upper Peninsula too.